0: Welcome to this podcast by City Point Church, Redcliffe. We are so happy you could join us and pray that the following message will encourage and empower you. The theme for this month is Christian classics. And this morning I wanted to share four really classic stories out of Scripture. And as I was preparing and as I was, you know, really seeking God on what to bring that's fresh, and that's relevant for where we are as a church right now. I felt God challenge me and he said, you know, to, to bring a leadership message. So this is actually not a congregation level message. This is a leadership message. Is that okay? Yeah. I'm gonna to speak to you all as leaders. I'm gonna to speak to you all as people who are switched on to leading themselves and to being an influence in their world. So I'm actually gonna bring a leadership message. Are you ready? Okay, so the title of my message this morning is How to Become a Leader of Leaders While Serving a Leader. How to be a leader of leaders while serving a leader. So really, it's all about being that person in the middle when you're under authority, but you also have authority. So you may be self-employed and you have staff. So this is relevant to you because you're operating under authority still, even if you're self-employed. You've got governance, you've got all those sorts of things. You also, as a Christian, have God, who you're operating under as your ultimate authority. Some of us have employers, and so they're above us, and we have responsibilities that we need to outwork. So really this message is applicable to everyone, but I felt God challenge us as a church to call ourselves up to a standard, to call ourselves up to a higher standard. And so this morning I'm going to speak to you as leaders. Are you ready? Are you ready? Okay. So four really classic stories out of scripture around this, stories between leaders in the Bible, and four themes, I guess, four ideas that we should all, as Jesus followers, be subscribing to, four ideas that we should be living by as Christians. We're all called to lives of influence. We're all called, the moment we say yes to Jesus, he wants us to have an impact, Okay, so these are four ideas. And the first one is that in order to be a leader, we have to lead in every setting, in every single setting, no matter where we are, we've decided we're leading. And so the classic illustration of this is actually Joseph in the Old Testament. And so the story of Joseph is amazing because it's a story of a young guy who has chosen to step up no matter what gets dished out to him. You know, I've seen people, and I think, how much can one person bear? You know those people you know, and it seems like they're constantly in trial? Those sorts of people. Well, this is the life of Joseph. And yet he constantly chose to rise above the challenge, and it was by his own decision that he did that. And so the story of Joseph goes a little bit like this, the classic story of Joseph, this young guy who was hated by his brothers. He's the youngest in the family, and his brothers hated him so much that they sold him into slavery. You thought your family was dysfunctional. Yeah. <laughs> right, this poor guy, no fault of his own, gets sold by his brothers into slavery. So he ends up in the house of a man named Potiphar. And he works so well and such integrity that he actually becomes the manager of the whole household. Potiphar actually promotes him and makes him the manager of his whole household. And so here's Joseph with integrity and character leading himself and leading in his setting. And then Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him because scripture says that he's handsome, he's got charisma, he's got, you know, everything going for him really other than the fact that he's a slave. He's actually a really amazing guy and so she tries to seduce him. And he responds by rejecting her and saying, there is no way that I would sin against God by doing this evil thing. And so in her embarrassment and in her shame, she actually frames him for rape. And she actually accuses him of something he has not done. Potiphar has him thrown into prison. And so again, at no fault of his own, he's in an unfortunate (laughs) circumstance. So now he's gone from being the head manager of a wealthy household to back into an unfortunate situation. In the bowels of a prison, he's sitting there. And it says that in Scripture that in no really extended a period of time, he gets promoted from being a prisoner to being an assistant guard. So here's this guy who's like, well, you know what? If I'm here, I may as well be awesome. If I'm here, I may as well make the most... Of this situation. And so he actually starts leading in a prison and he's there at no fault of his own. And so he starts leading and he gets to a point where the guards start trusting him with responsibilities. And so while he's in prison, he's obviously meeting all sorts of people and he meets these two guys who were once assistants to um, Pharaoh, to the king of Egypt. And so they're thrown into prison because Pharaoh decides he doesn't like them anymore. And so they're sitting there and they have start having these dreams. And Joseph, because he's spirit led and and a godly guy, he is, has the gift to interpret what's happening. And so he interprets this man's dream. And in the dream, he basically foretells that this guy's going to be reinstated and he's going to be back in Pharaoh's court, which happens. So the, this guy ends up being reinstated and he's back in Pharaoh's court. And Joseph says before he leaves, hey, don't forget about me down here. Like, put in a good word for me. And the guy is so excited to get out of prison that he forgets about Joseph. And poor Joseph is sitting there in prison. We don't know how much longer, but he's still there until Pharaoh starts having dreams that no one can interpret. And this guy goes, oh, oh my gosh, there's a guy that I was meant to remember. He's still in prison. He can interpret your dream, Pharaoh. He's really good. And so Pharaoh pulls Joseph out of prison, and Joseph is able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And the dreams are a foretelling of what's going to happen in the nation of Egypt. The dreams say that Egypt is going to go through seven years of abundance and wealth and and bumper crops, and it's just going to be an amazing season for seven years, followed by seven years of famine. It's going to be a really hard time. It's going to spread beyond Egypt into the nations around Egypt. And so Pharaoh's like, You are the guy for the job. And he pulls him out of prison and gives him the responsibility of all of the um, asset accumulation. He gives them the responsibility of all the storage of crops and and in safe houses, so that during the years of plenty they can put away for the years of famine. So Joseph goes from being a prisoner to the prime minister of Egypt, the prime minister of Egypt. But he did it because he chose to lead no matter what. He chose to lead no matter what setting he found himself in, no matter what the setting we need to choose to lead. I want to tell you, I personally am always looking for culture setters. I'm always looking for people who are leading no matter what's happening in their lives, who are always speaking of the possibility of God and an excellent standard of, the he- of heaven no matter what they're going through. And that is a leader. That is someone who's going to move forward no matter what comes against them. And so I'm always looking for that. Some examples of this might be when you're in conversation, when you're in conversation, that you're setting the topic of conversation. Scripture tells us that gossip ends with a wise person. That you're actually determining the topic of conversation. That's leading in every setting. Maybe at work, when you understand I'm a leader in every setting, your boss starts to know that you're the person who's going to have an, ex, uh, an excellent work ethic. Your boss knows that you're the one that's going to go the extra mile. Your boss knows that you're a go-to, that you can be trusted, that you're excellent. That's what it means to lead in every setting. On a Sunday, on a Sunday, it means that you're in your seat in the three-minute countdown video. Because I lead, no matter where I am, no matter what day of the week it is, because I'm a leader. I've chosen to lead in every setting. It means, like the scripture says, a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, so you're either a leader or you're not. So you have to ask the question, am I a leader or am I a follower? Because when we understand that I'm a leader, I'm actually a leader in every setting. I'm a leader whether I'm at home, um, watching The Voice with my kids, or whether I'm having Mexican with my friends, or whether I'm at work, or whether I'm in conversation, I am leading no matter where I am. It means if you're a student, that your assignments are in early. (laughs) (laughs) This is an excellent way to live. This is a leadership way to live. And when you are that person, you are promoted. God can move you forward when you are leading in every setting. No matter where you are, you lead all the time. I have this thought that you can either be excellent or entitled, but you can't be both. You can either be excellent or entitled, but you can't be both. You see, if Joseph had an entitlement spirit, he would have sat in the bottom of the prison for the rest of his life. But he had an excellent spirit which called him out of unfortunate circumstances. Excellence is leadership, that culture that rises above. So you need to lead in every setting. The second thing is that we nail bad culture every time we see it. Being a leader requires that we nail bad culture. And the classic story of this is actually um, David under Saul. And so the story in scripture of David is this young man, Who's a shepherd boy, and the king of Israel is a man named Saul, King Saul, and King Saul starts behaving like starts doing dodgy deals and starts you know being prideful, and so God's like, this guy can't lead my people anymore, so he looks for a person to anoint as king in Saul's place, and he finds David looking after some sheep in a paddock, and he says, this guy, he has a heart like mine I love this guy and so Samuel the prophet anoints David as king but Saul is still king and so Saul hears about this and as he gets older he becomes more crazy and more narcissistic and more intimidated you know you may know someone like that you know those crazy people those narcissistic people right okay maybe no one maybe just me And so David is exiled. The king actually kicks him out because he's intimidated by him, is threatened that this young guy is going to take his throne. So David spends, scholars say, around seven to ten years in the wilderness running for his life. After being anointed as king, he has to run for his life for seven years. And so he's in the wilderness and often um, he finds himself kind of like awkwardly in a face-off between Saul Saul and his men in the wilderness. So Saul is pursuing David, looking for him to find him. And as he's out there, um, and because Saul's just so crazy and so intimidated and so insecure, he's exiling all sorts of people. And so there's more and more people in the wilderness who end up finding themselves in David's company. And David's like reluctantly leading this motley crew of people. But I want to read to you um, in... 1 Samuel chapter 26, a powerful passage of scripture about how to nail bad culture. So here's David, he's running for his life, he's being unfairly treated like literally someone is trying to take his life. He's hiding, and one night they're basically camped up against each other. Saul's army don't know that David's right there with his guys. And so here we pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 26 of the first book of Samuel. So David and Abishai, Abishai was one of his men, entered the encampment, Saul's encampment, by night, and there he was, Saul, stretched out asleep at the center of the camp, his spear stuck in the ground near his head, with Abner, who was meant to be the assistant, and the troops sound asleep on all sides. Who knows you don't want an assistant who's asleep on the job? right? So Abner's asleep on the job and David's right there, like literally breathing over Saul. And Abishai, David's guy, says, this is your moment. God has put your enemy in your grasp. Let me take it. Let me, let me nail him to the ground with his spear. One hit will do it. Believe me, I won't need a second. Verse nine, but David said to Abishai, don't you dare hurt him Who could lay a hand on God's anointed and even think about getting away with it? He went on, as God lives, either God will strike him, or his time will come and he'll die in bed, or he'll fall in battle. But God forbid that I should lay a finger on God's anointed. Now grab the spear and the water jug and let's get out of here. This is an amazing, amazing passage of scripture. This is a scripture that shows us how we're supposed to respond. I want to tell you that sometimes opportunities are actually tests. And you may have people in your life who are trying to counsel you towards an opportunity because, David, you've prayed for this. This is obviously the provision of God. You need to take advantage of this situation. There are going to be times in your life when you're going to go, awesome. This is God and it's not. And it's not. Be careful of seizing opportunities. I want to say that there's something wrong with your character if opportunity controls your loyalty. We need to be careful when we're taking promotions and uprooting our families. We need to be careful when we're jumping at opportunities because it's not always the best thing. It's not always the good, rooted thing that God wants us to do with our character and our integrity. And so we see David correcting the bad culture in his men. And I want to read you um, a passage of, of um, an excerpt out of a book called The Tale of Three Kings. Has anyone read The Tale of Three Kings? A couple of us here. By Gene Edwards. I want to read you how he describes the situation. Others had to flee as the king's madness grew. First one, then three, then ten. Eventually, Hundreds. After long searching, some of these fugitives made contact with David. They hadn't seen him for a long time. The truth was when they did see him, they didn't recognize him. He had changed. His personality, his disposition, his total being had been altered. He talked less. He loved God more. He sang differently. They never heard these songs before. Some of them were lovely beyond words, but some could freeze the blood in your veins." Those who found him decided to be his fellow fugitives, and they were a sorry, worthless lot. Thieves, liars, complainers, fault finders, rebellious men with rebellious hearts. They were blind with hate for the king, and therefore all authority figures. They would have been troublemakers in paradise if anyone ever let them in. David didn't lead them. He didn't share their attitudes. Yet, unsolicited, they began to follow. He never spoke to them of authority. He never spoke of submission but every one of them submitted. He laid down no rules. Legalism is not a word found in the vocabulary of fugitives. Nonetheless, they cleaned up their outward lives, and gradually their inward lives began to change too. They didn't fear submission or authority. They didn't even think about the topic, much less discuss it. But why did they follow him? They didn't exactly. It's just that, well, he was David, and that didn't need any further explanation. And so for the first time, true kingship had found its nativity. It's a powerful, powerful position you hold when you can nail bad culture among your peers and around the people you see around you. I remember a few years ago we had this workspace, um, a big open work plan where people could drop in after school or in their spare hours and just work in the office and so big workstation Um, and then there was like a a small reception area where our assistant worked and then inside that was Sam's office and my office. And I I loved sitting in there and, and overhearing the conversation happening in the workstation because often who was in there didn't know that I was in my office. And so I'm sitting there overhearing conversations and it's hilarious because when you know your people, you know their voices and so you know who's saying what. And so I'm sitting there this one particular day, and uh, these two young guys come in, and one of them is griping and complaining about the fact that his skateboard was stolen at youth group last Friday night. And he's complaining, and he's talking about how he's going to ask for the church to reimburse him because, you know, it's just wrong that that would happen, and he's having a good old sob about the fact that his expensive skateboard was stolen at youth. And this other guy who was with him goes, dude, it's awesome that your skateboard was stolen means there was an unsaved kid at youth. He goes, church is not a country club. Why don't you actually release that skateboard to the kid and then you release it in the spirit, he might actually find salvation because he stole that skateboard. Like, turn the situation around and stop being negative about it and start sowing seeds and believing in the next generation. Can I tell you, I'm sitting in my office doing these ones, going, someone put that guy in leadership. Someone put that guy in authority because he's nailing bad culture and he's standing up for kingdom culture. We need to be the sorts of people who nail bad culture. What you walk past, you approve of. If you walk past something and do nothing about it, it means you're in agreement with that thing. Do you remember a while ago? Um, who remembers the John, John West, the fish guy? Do you remember his ads on TV? Say it with me. It's the fish John West rejects that makes John West the best. Right? And so it's the bad culture we reject that keeps the culture of heaven pure and strong and effective. When we reject bad culture, we strengthen good culture. And we have to be those sorts of people who are willing to nail bad culture. I want to ask you, what is your culture? Are you a culture setter? What is your default? You can tell your default by how people feel comfortable to speak around you. If people feel comfortable to gossip and complain around you, that's actually telling of your own personal culture. Because if we're strong and if we're positive and if we're faith-filled, gossipers and complainers don't like hanging around us because we don't give any oxygen to what they have to say. I'll leave that there. Number three, to be a leader of leaders while serving a leader means you're going to have to, at times, step out from your peers. You're going to have to step out and be counted separately from your peers. And the classic story of this is Caleb and Joshua under Moses. And so the background for this story is that Caleb and Joshua were the, two of the spies that Moses sent in to scout out the promised land that God had promised his people for generations. And they're finally there. They're finally at the doorstep and, and Moses sends in spies to check it out, to scout it out under disguise to check out what's there. The thing about Caleb and Joshua, among all the other spies, is that... Joshua was, they were actually all full-blooded Israelites except Caleb. So Caleb was from the line of Esau, not the line of Israel. And so God had made um, exceptions for all people and always has. And he allowed people who were not Israelites to come into his family through covenant agreement. And so Caleb was actually one of these guys who was actually a part of Israel, but not really. A part of Israel through covenant agreement, not blood. And so we see that actually this group of people that Caleb would have been associated with were like ring-ins. And so there would have been, I guess, some racial tension in Israel with these guys because it would have been like, well, yeah, like you're not really part of the family, you're just part of the family because God says you can be. And, you know, just, all right, tag along if you have to. And so there's this full-blooded people and then, the covenant agreement people. Well, Caleb was from the bloodline of Esau. And yet Moses chooses him to represent a whole tribe to go into the promised land. Caleb was also double the age of all the other spies. He basically was someone who could have discredited himself and definitely all his peers would have discredited him. And Moses chooses him. And I want to read with you the passage of, of Scripture where they go into the promised land and what happens. It's powerful, Caleb's response. Numbers 13, verse 17, Moses sent them out to scout Canaan, go up through the Negev and into the hill country and look over the land and see what it's like. And they arrived and they cut off a branch of a single cluster of grapes and it took two men to carry it. It was that fruitful. Verse 26, they presented themselves before Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation of the people of Israel, who they say were about 1.5 million people in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh and they reported to the whole congregation and showed them the fruit of the land and they told the story of their trip. We went into the land which you sent us and oh, it does, it flows with milk and honey. Just look at this fruit. The only thing is that the people who live there are fierce. Their cities are huge and well fortified. Worse yet, we saw the descendants of the giant Anak. Do you remember Goliath? Yes, this is his family. The Amalekites are spread out in the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, and all the Vegemites in the hill country. And the Canaanites are established on the Mediterranean Sea along the Jordan. Verse 30. (coughs) Caleb interrupted. Caleb, the guy who should not have even been there. The guy who was not a pure breed. The guy who shouldn't have had a voice. The guy who was inadequate and insecure and inappropriate and just shouldn't have been there. Hello, anyone else in the room? The guy who was a ring-in. The guy who everyone else was kind of like, yeah, just be quiet. What do you know? Him. He stood up to 1.5 million people. And he said, he called for silence and said, let's go up and take the land. Now we can do it. In the face of that kind of opposition, he stands up. But the others said, we can't attack them. They're way stronger than we are. And they spread scary rumors among the people of Israel. They said, we scouted out the land, and it's a land that swallows people whole. Everyone was huge. Why, we even saw the Nephilim giants. Alongside them, we were grasshoppers, and they looked down at us as if we were grasshoppers. Numbers 14. The whole community was in uproar and wailing all night long. How dramatic. How dramatic all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and the entire community was in on it. Why didn't we die in Egypt or in this wilderness? Why has God brought us into this country just to kill us? Our wives and children are about to become plunder. Why don't we head back to Egypt? And right now, verse 4 is possibly the saddest verse in the whole Bible. And soon they were saying to one another, let's pick a new leader to take us back to Egypt. Moses and Aaron fell on their faces in front of the entire community and gathered an emergency session. Joshua and Caleb ripped their clothes and addressed the assembled people of Israel. The land we walked through and scouted out is a very good land. It's very good indeed. If God is pleased with us, He'll lead us into the land that flows, as they say, with milk and honey. He'll give it to us. Just don't rebel against God and don't be afraid of the people. Why, we'll have them for lunch. They have no protection and God is on our side. Don't be afraid of them. And then the entire community is up in arms and they start talking about, let's kill Caleb and Joshua. Let's silence this voice. It's too hard. And they're talking about killing them. Moses hears from God and God's angry and God's like, I'm just going to wipe them all out. And Moses is like, please don't do that. And so God says, fine, I won't do that. But you know what? All of them, all the ones who don't believe, they're going to wander around in this wilderness until they die. They won't go into the promised land. That's huge. I won't kill them, but they'll die in their own unbelief. But then we pick it up. We pick it up in uh, verse 24. But my servant Caleb, this is a different story. He has a different spirit. He follows me passionately. I'll bring him into the land that he scouted and his children will inherit it. So important for us to understand. Caleb then spends the next 40 years, I mean, you get upset when the McDonald's drive-thru isn't ready in 60 seconds. This guy, for 40 years, is leading a bunch of people who want him dead, who want him to be silent, who are mad at him. For 40 years, he's dealing with strife and complaining and negativity. For 40 years, he's kept out of his own promise And he's dealing with all of this. He's faithfully serving Moses and Aaron until Moses and Aaron pass away with that whole generation and Joshua and Caleb become the leaders of Israel and they take the new generation into the promised land. What's amazing is this guy who should not even have been there, it's actually his daughter who takes on the Crusades and continues advancing the kingdom of God. It's not even Joshua's kids. It's Caleb's kids. I want to tell you, there are going to be times when you have to step out from the crowd. There are going to be times when you have to say what is contrary to everybody else. If that's who you are, if you want to be a leader, if you want to see the promise, there are going to be times when you may have to stand completely alone. And that's what leadership requires. You need to stop blending in. You need to stop following suit. You need to stop being one of the crowd and start leading. You need to stop attending a life group and start running one. You need to stop joining the conversation and start setting the faith-filled topics of conversation. You need to stop coming to church, wanting to be fed, and come ready to feed someone else. Leadership can be lonely. Relationships will change. Friendships experience tension. And the people closest to you won't even recognize you anymore but it just depends on whether you wanna see the promise or if you wanna die in the wilderness. Step up, speak in faith, act in obedience, no matter who opposes you, and don't grow weary. 40 years, 40 years, we need to step out from the peers. Number four, we need to be able to shake off complacency. Shake off complacency. To lead ourselves and to lead others in longevity means you'll routinely have to arrest yourself and shake off complacency. And a leader doesn't wait for anyone to do that for them. A leader does it for themselves. The art of shaking off complacency, we see this in the relationship between Paul and Timothy. So who's Paul? Well, Paul started off as Saul, a Jewish upright, someone who dotted all the I's and crossed all the T's. He was a hired assassin... (coughs) that the Jewish church sent to um, basically extinguish this newfound faith in Jesus Christ. They were intimidated by it. So they hired Saul to find Christians and kill them. So he persecuted and murdered Christians. And so he's on his way to another awesome crusade uh, on his mission. And he is intercepted by the Spirit of God on the road to Damascus and literally is knocked off his high horse And he meets Jesus and he's converted. And over time, he changes his name to Paul because in those days, names were very cultural and he wanted to relate more to to more groups of people. So he changes his name to Paul. In his newfound spirit-filled life, as now a born-again believer in Jesus and spirit-filled, he goes to Rome and Rome is a pagan powerhouse of the day. And he goes to Rome and he evangelizes all of Rome. If you've been to Rome, it is such a spiritual experience. Walking through those cobblestone streets, walking through the temples. I, I, I encourage you, it has to be on your bucket list. You experience the book of Acts walking through Rome. And here, here he is, he, he evangelizes all of Rome and he raises up this young man named Timothy. And he puts Timothy over the new church he's planted, a church in a little city called Ephesus. And so the church in Ephesus starts exploding and it grows. It becomes a multi-site church with tens of thousands of people in it. And scholars tell us that Timothy was between 18 and 25 years of age when he did this. Like, I want to tell you, what are you doing with your life? Right? Here's this young guy leading this evangelistic crusade in the economic and cultural powerhouse of the day, seeing people converted. And we read a letter that that Paul wrote to Timothy. He wrote to Timothy quite often and he wrote to the church in Ephesus, which is where we get the book of Ephesians from. But 2 Timothy, the second letter in the first chapter, verse five, Paul is writing to this young man named Timothy. Verse five, I remember your genuine faith. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother and then your mother. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift that God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but power and love and a sound mind. Never be ashamed to tell others about our God. And don't be ashamed of me either, for even though I'm in prison, With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. Why was Paul writing to a young man about intimidation and fear and shame? Probably because he was intimidated and afraid and feeling shameful about what he was doing. And Paul is saying to him, hey, shake it off. He's saying, stir up the flame. Stir the gift that's in you. Those coals, don't let them go hot. Stir it up. He's saying, don't you remember you were groomed for this? Don't you remember you have what it takes? I want to tell you, you might not have a grandmother and a mother like Timothy did, but the fact that you're sitting here is the hand of God grooming you for what he wants you to do in your generation and in your spheres of influence. You have what it takes. And he's saying, remember that. Remember who you are and walk boldly in that. He's saying, why don't you stir it up? Don't let it grow cold. And he's saying, count the cost. Don't be ashamed. Be willing to suffer and count it and then pay it. Be willing to pay it. Stir it up. And a good leader does that for themselves. A good leader doesn't (coughs) wait for someone to do that for them. I want to tell you there are going to be seasons, not one, many. There are going to be seasons in your life that try to water down your heat. There are gonna be seasons in your life that try to extinguish the flame of God on your life. But to be a leader in the kingdom of God, to be a culture setter, to be filled with the Spirit means I'm constantly, diligently, intentionally coming back to God going, God, breathe on the flames of my heart. Remind me of my first love. Bring me to my knees again, Jesus. Remind me of the why behind the what. Show me again that I'll never forget, that I won't grow cold. A good leader has the ability to identify their own turning down and is very quick to arrest it and turn it back up, to do the things that need to be done to stay hot. To stay hot. This morning, church, This is our call. It is our call to make an impact. It is our call to just love Jesus. And loving Jesus means bringing him into our world. It means being countercultural. It means being set apart, holy as he is holy. And so I want to ask you, are you a leader or not? Are you willing to come to the party with me? Are you willing to step up to the plate with me? Are you willing to make an impact in every day of your life? Thank you for listening. We pray that this message empowers you to unmistakably influence your world for good and for God. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. This is the beginning of a life-changing journey. We would love to see you at one of our many City Point Church services across Brisbane and the world this Sunday. You can find out more about our service times and locations at citypointchurch.com. We're so excited to see you there.